This program is brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U at Stanford University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu. Thank you very much for coming. This is the first seminar of the Southeast Asia Forum. We've got quite a busy schedule, and you can pick it up if you um, wish uh, by <coughs> checking out the purple sheet uh, on your way out. I won't go through all the talks that are coming out this fall quarter, except to mention two of them because they are the most proximate in time. The first is on Tuesday, the 16th of October. Uh, it's a lecture by a Boston University professor of anthropology, Robert Hefner, who is the recipient of the first Lee Kong Chan Distinguished Fellowship on Southeast Asia. This is a brand new endowed fellowship for Southeast Asianists at the sort of mid-career to senior uh, level. And uh, he is the first uh, incumbent. So he will be both at Stanford and at our partner in this exercise, the National University of Singapore, uh, off and on this year. Um, and he will actually, in the spring, although it's a long time away, in April, be teaching a course, a week-long course, on madrasas, Islamic education in Indonesia and their implications for the Muslim world, uh, which will be open to any of you that might wish to attend. He's a terrific scholar and a good teacher as well. Two days later, on the 18th of October, we have Burma's crisis, timely, <clears throat> unintentionally timely. When I planned this, I had no idea. And the subtitle is, What Should Outsiders Do? Uh, I think it's going to be a unique occasion because the two individuals on the panel, Maureen Ong Twin from George Soros' uh, Open Society Institute in New York, uh, herself uh, a Burmese by background, and Zarni, uh, that's just one word, that's his name, a visiting fellow at the University of Oxford, also a Burmese, have <coughs> diametrically opposed views on the wisdom or unwisdom of isolating Burma versus engaging Burma, an issue I suppose that has become even more acute given the recent uh, saffron, short-lived perhaps, saffron revolution in that country. But mainly what I want to do today is introduce our speaker. I'm sure many of you are familiar with the uh, sort of cliched joke about the academic and the Consultant, and the consultant is explaining that he's just come back, in this case, from Vietnam, and he had some great ideas, and one of these ideas really worked, and it just, everything fell into place, and Vietnamese economic growth began to take off, and economic reform was promoted. And the academic cuts him off and says, look, I know it works in practice, but the important question is, does it work in theory? <laughs> I've known Steve for quite some time. And I must say, as <clears throat> a self-critical academic, I've always admired his ability to shift back and forth between those, those two universes, the analytic, if not even theoretical universe on the one hand, and the very practical one on the other. Uh, he works for Development Alternatives, uh, which is uh, located in Maryland. Um, someone earlier today referred to it as a Beltway Bandit. I'm not sure that's <laughs> a fair description. Actually, I once worked for them as well, hmm. yeah, on the north coast of, of Java. <clears throat> He's had an extraordinary career, the most important portion of which, for our purposes, is the fact that he was resident in Vietnam from October 2001 until February of this year, uh, and has been back a couple of times since then. And that period of time is particularly intriguing for the topic of his talk because it begins uh, with the bilateral trade agreement between the United States, which the, he was then very much uh, an important part of trying to implement, as we will hear in a few moments. 
And it came to a close at the beginning of this year. As you probably know, in January of 2007, Vietnam finally joined the World Trade Organization. Another goal, uh, presumably, that he had that, although I don't want to single him out as the <laughs> sole cause of that affiliation, he's been, in other words, in the center of the politics of economic reform and economic policy making in Vietnam. And that's why I'm particularly pleased to be able to offer you today, Steve Parker. Oh, well, thank you very much, John. And, uh, it's very nice uh, to be here, and it's nice to see a number of people I haven't seen for a while. So that's a great opportunity. And as Don mentioned, I am sort of a practitioner. I'm, I haven't uh, read the literature in a while. But uh, there is a lot that's going on in Vietnam. And what I thought I'd try to do is give a quick overview for about 20 or 30 minutes about uh, what we've been doing, um, what Vietnam's been doing, the role of the trade agreements, gets into a little bit of U.S foreign policy as well, uh, and then raise some questions for discussion. Uh, and But I think it's, uh, people don't know a lot about Vietnam, so I think we sort of need to get a common base of, of understanding. And then, uh, but I know several people have to leave early, so if you've got questions you want to ask uh, before I finish with the overview, feel free to raise your hand. I'll be glad to answer those questions. Also, I forgot to say, this is co-sponsored. Nick Hope is here. I apologize <laughs> to him. With the Stanford Center for International Development. So thank you, Nick. Uh, I'll introduce quickly just our project uh, because uh, one, one theme is really the effectiveness that uh, USAID project was able to have in Vietnam and the way a USAID project worked with USTR in, within the, the US government process, which many of you may know is not a very easy thing to do. Uh, history and experience has, is ripe with conflict between theoretical or you know, economic trade advisors that go out and and uh, advise governments about the right kind of trade policy to do. And of course, trade policy is inherently dirty. There's a lot of things that, are, that uh, an economist sort of just has to hold their nose up to. But if you're representing the US government, you can't be critical of. And so USTR, of course, is out there representing US trade interests. And there's often a conflict between how a technical advisor and how USTR represents that. You have to be very careful about how to deal with that. And interestingly, as a bit of another tangent, um, the emphasis of the Bush administration on using free trade agreements and expanding free trade agreements into developing countries has actually turned out to be one of its, his most prominent uh, uh, successes in terms of development policy. Uh, these trade agreements and the role that uh, the United States plays as always the lead negotiator in the WTO sessions uh, enforces on uh, a country a, a massive set of regulation of, of requirements for uh, legal and administrative reform as well as as market as increasing market access and it's really that legal and administrative reform that's critical for development certainly increasing competition helps and for particularly transition economies that uh, that had uh, legal environments that were far from international best practice it's a very important element of um, of now development policy and it draws all the more US foreign assistance linked into US trade policy and you're seeing more and more of those types as far as I know, we were actually the first project that was designed only to support a U.S. Uh, trade agreement. We were also the first major technical assistance program in Vietnam since the war. So that gave us an element of sort of uh, being involved with the, the normalization process. The uh, bilateral trade agreement, which I'll go into a little bit more, that normalized trade relations with Vietnam and economic relations. It's almost hard to believe, but it was only December 10, 2001 that we normalized relations with Vietnam. And politically, of course, we normalized in 95. We, we pulled the embargo on uh, 1994. Um, so um, 
and so we're the first, and we're, then we're the first major technical assistant team uh, that came in to work. Of course, that was interesting because we were the first Americans that many Vietnamese had the opportunity to work with. And uh, that both raised a lot of challenges in terms of building the credibility uh, that we needed so that they felt comfortable working with us, uh, but also raised sort of an interest. They were sort of interested in working with Americans to see what they were doing. And interestingly, Vietnamese certainly looked to America as a, as a, a, a sense of best practice of where they're moving. They're not uh, unambitious in that, uh, in that way. Um, and to emphasize at the bottom here that, um, that the work that, you, that we've done on trade agreements and then the legal reforms required to implement those trade agreements uh, work on with basic trade issues. I mean, you're working on uh, tariffs and quotas and uh, technical barriers to trade and sanitary and phytosanitary issues. But you also move into a lot of really fundamental legal development and economic and, and basically broad governance work. One of the things that was exciting about our project was um, after we gained credibility, we were actually assigned to work with 47 different state agencies. So basically, the entire Vietnamese government, including the party, including all the committees of the National Assembly, almost every ministry, and uh, 10 uh, local uh, provincial committees, uh, which gave us access that a donor has never had the chance to, to have, and access also to work with the conceptualization of, of a law all the way through to final approval by the National Assembly, and then actually then implementation of that afterwards. So that was a, a, a very exciting uh, opportunity to be involved that way. And even further, uh, if you think about the trade agreements, they have specific requirements, and you think about a, a major law, uh, there may be a series of 10 articles out of 100 that may be a, a related to the, uh, to the trade agreement that you have to work with, and we always gave that emphasis. But the other 90 articles we were always asked to comment on. We were always asked to comment in terms of international best practice. So we were allowed to get a lot more involved, not only in just the still important elements related to the, uh, to the trade agreements, but also to broader, the broader process of uh, legal development in Vietnam. I wanted to also lay out a sense of the development context, which I think is very important to have, have an idea of where Vietnam's coming from. Uh, probably most prominently, uh, Vietnam has a population bubble, a demographic bubble. And uh, actually, you know, people don't pay a lot of attention to this, but actually the bubble that went through Southeast Asia and China 15 years ago is, is highly correlated with when governments in Southeast Asia and China made economic reforms. Vietnam's about 15 years late because of the American-Vietnamese War. Uh, but what you have now is you've got around 1.5 million new young people coming out into the labor force every year. In addition to uh, a rural labor force is still uh, in large part underemployed and sort of hovering at, uh, at uh, poverty levels. So uh, you've got a lot of people that need jobs. And of course, that just gets you right into what economists uh, have a pretty comfortable idea about what to do. Vietnam is also at a very early stage of industrialization. Unlike China, when they began to liberalize, China, under the, the, their Soviet stage, uh, had industrialized up in the north. Vietnam has very little industry. Uh, and in many ways, that was good because it had less vested interest in to, to, uh, to react to a lot of the reforms that occurred. Uh, but it also, you know, and it also sort of got you, you got that early sort of industrialization hit in terms of growth and, and uh, uh, broad-based broad growth. The fact that uh, Vietnam did not have access, uh, did not have economic relations with, with the United States meant that, that Vietnam uh, had to uh, face uh, basically smooth holly tariffs up until uh, 2001. 
an average tariff that Vietnam faced was around 40%, so in large cases, prohibitive. So Vietnam exported very little to the United States up until 2001. And similarly, unlike all of its neighbors, its labor-intensive neighbors, it exported primarily primary goods and very little manufactured goods. So it had an abnormal trade structure relative to a country with 82 million people sitting in the middle of Southeast Asia, again, largely because of the, uh, of the relationship with the United States. And then there's this issue of what I sort of call the political calculus or the political will that I think is very important to understand. And I think very much like your comments, particularly people from the political science side. The way I look at this is that you've got a, a one-party state, a communist state, not unlike the one-party state that, uh, that we worked with in Indonesia in the 80s with Suharto, who gets its basic political legitimacy based on social stability and rising prosperity. And if you throw into that mix then, uh, a lot of young people coming to the labor force, you absolutely have to focus on creating jobs, which then moves you directly into moving to the market, expanding the private sector, and internationalizing and taking an export-led uh, uh, growth uh, strategy. Not unlike the rest of Southeast Asia and China, China did 15 years earlier. Uh, but it's important to understand why the Communist Party of Vietnam, an isolated uh, 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 um, government structure and a one-party state, would make all of these reforms. And I, I, and I see it because it's done basically in their own self-interest to maintain political legitimacy. Um, and um, so that's, a, that's, uh, that's important to, to look at. Another area that uh, sort of basics is that Vietnam started with in, in 2000 with really an outdated uh, legal structure. It's a combination of, of basically the two worst cases, the Napoleonic uh, Civil Code and the, the so former Soviet law code, both very authoritarian, both very not very not market friendly, and and, uh, and in large part, in large part out of line with international best practice. So they had to make a lot of reforms to conform with uh, with the requirements in the trade agreements. But not only in the trade agreements to improve contract law, just the basic sort of uh, legal institutions for uh, market development. And then Vietnam uh, began to negotiate in 95 uh, the BTA at the same time as they negotiated with the WTO. Um, and then quickly, for our project, we were uh, brought in uh, and we were able to engage really with um, policymakers in Vietnam like no other donor project had ever been able to before. And I can get into some of the reasons for that, but it was very exciting. We wound up uh, supporting uh, uh, over 93 reforms and laws and regulations. Some of that meant developing a whole new civil procedure code. Other times meant tweaking a customs law. So there were different magnitudes of, of what we got into, but uh, but in large, but some of those were very major developments and new laws. Uh, as of February 15, 69 of those laws had been passed. Supported 290 seminars uh, over five years, which is a phenomenal amount. We organized about three of those. Again, we operated as, as a demand-driven project, which meant that we supported our, our counterparts to move forward the reforms that they had to, had to move forward. They did the organization, and we were able to support a, a lot of this activity. Um, now, what we've, we've just completed a report uh, that I wanted to summarize. It's a report on the five-year impact of the uh, U.S.-Vietnam bilateral trade agreement on trade, investment, and economic structure. Um, Now, when you sort of look from the two governments' perspective, and you look back at 1995, uh, basically the two governments accomplished almost everything that they set out to do <coughs> at that stage. Uh, they uh, completed the negotiations for the BTA as of December 10, 2001, with normalized relations. 
by all accounts, that period of, of, uh, of implementation of the BTA from 2001 to 2006 was successful and very much set the stage for the, the, the BTA was, was uh, organized around the WTO principles. So the changes that had to be made for the BTA led directly to the changes that were required by the WTO. So it accelerated the accession process for the WTO. Uh, they fully normalized relations uh, with the passage of permanent non-tariff uh, 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 NTR in um, uh, December when the president signed that. And then they got into the WTO January 11, 2007. And then within just three or four months, the USTR has already negotiated TIFA, a trade and investment framework agreement, which is sort of the, the part of the process towards uh, potentially a, a full-scale uh, free trade agreement. And they're just beginning to nego negotiate a bilateral investment treaty and a bilateral tr uh, tax treaty will probably be soon. That going back to when we went in 2001, it was before uh, economic relations were normalized and, for instance, before they had a technical agreement on economic cooperation. So we were operating there without really knowing whether we had tax-free status and all these types of things. So it's just amazing how, how many of the relationships between the U.S. and Vietnam, how well that developed and pretty much as planned uh, over that 10-year period. Now, the BTA, as I mentioned, is very much built on a WTO set of principles. Uh, they actually go a little bit farther than WTO on investment because the WTO has lagged in a lot of its investment policy. Uh, but it was aimed uh, to, allow the, to allow Vietnam to sort of build, make these institutional and legal changes that take time uh, so that they could comply both with the BTA and meet the WTO requirements. And they had comprehensive uh, requirements in trading goods, uh, commercial law and dispute settlement throughout the, the, the agreement, intellectual property right protection. Intellectual property right protection has a number of uh, specific procedural requirements of the court system, as well as definitions of intellectual property. As you know, the U.S. pushes uh, IPR. It's always one of the areas that they push the hardest when they look at these trade agreements. Uh, trade and services, so it began the process of opening up about 25 major services. Uh, it had a whole range of investment requirements that went far beyond the, the trims that are typically in a um, uh, in the WTO and included uh, uh, allowing smaller uh, U.S. Um, uh, investments to be registered and not have to be evaluated and, and so on and so forth. Uh, business facilitation and for the legal side, transparency and right to appeal. And actually it was only about two or three pages, but it, it was one of the areas that probably had almost the most important, had the most impact on, uh, on Vietnam and one of the areas we worked on the most. Uh-huh. Enough uh, people and legal system that can sort of adjudicate disputes. And actually, you know, these agreements are there, but can you, you know, can you get them enforced? Can you get them sort of interpreted? Are there enough right. people that, right. that have got the expertise to do that? Right. Uh, we'll get in, and, and uh, we identify is, uh, you know, there, there's been a, a very strong improvement in the letter of the law, and not only an improvement of the laws that were there, but a deepening of the laws. There's many more laws than were there before. Uh, so there's been a lot of improvements in that and the regulations underneath that. But there is an implementation gap that's probably the largest challenge for Vietnam over the next five years. And that implementation gap deals both with human resources, having the, the lawyers and the trained government officials and the business uh, people to be able to operate in this more modern and you know, market-based and uh, less administrative controlled environment. But also it, it involves a lot of new legal reforms in terms of how of the roles and functions and incentives of, of institutions in Vietnam. So it includes, for instance, rewriting the, uh, the law and the organization of the courts, improving the appeal process, the role of the judges and the, and the tenure of the judges, 
uh, potentially putting an economic court, uh, adjusting economic court to specialize in international trade, intellectual property, uh, working with the prosecutors, developing administrative procedure code that lays out uh, how government uh, decisions are made, uh, the independence of the state bank. There's a whole lot of things that are, that are coming up here. In many ways, we talk about the last five years as working on the rules of the game. A lot of the WTO is basically establishing the rules of the game, but it doesn't really talk about how you implement those effectively. And the next five years are making these both changes in the institutional structures and the incentive structures in government, and then also decisions on how you're going to upgrade the human resources. Uh, Vietnam has, I think, between two and 3,000 lawyers. And law schools are not very good. Uh, Sue Mendelson works with the law schools more than, than I do. And the education system is another one of these gaps that really are not keeping up with the reform in Vietnam. It's a really major challenge. And of course, it has a, a political element to that because it requires really a freeing up of the education system, the political system has been reluctant to do. But you're exactly right. It's a major issue. And when you do these kind of competitiveness surveys where you get perspectives of businesses and so on and so forth, they show there's been improvements, but they show that there's still major issues involved with how businesses operate. And less uh, and more of a case than you would see if you did an analysis of the letter of the law. So that, that's a very key challenge that, uh, that they have. Um, and then going back to BTA, it opened up the U.S. market for Vietnamese exports overnight. It gave MFN treatment, so it lowered tariffs from 40 down to average of 3 to 4 percent, which was a, a, had a tremendous impact on Vietnam. It required a modernization and systemization of their commercial and legal systems, uh, and it opened up Vietnamese service sectors. That was the main, the main uh, effect of the, of the BTA. And this is a, a, a list of, of a lot of the laws sort of uh, aggregated that had to be changed. I, if anybody wants to go into any more detail on that, I, I can. I can talk about. Uh, in response to the BTA, uh, one of the things that were important both economically and also politically, when the BTA was, uh, was approved by the National Assembly of the United States finally and, and implemented in 2001, there was a lot of suspicion in Vietnam as to whether this was just sort of an American ploy to go back and take advantage of Vietnam. You know, we fought the war with Vietnam and now we've got to, we're with the United States and now they're coming back and they're pushing us around. And Vietnam had to make a huge amount of changes. And, and the United States didn't have to make any legal changes. We already abided by everything except for the, the tariff codes. Yes? Do the BTA make any stipulations on currency and currency control and, and moving monies around? It did, on, it did, on, it did uh, require, it, uh, require that you could repatriate earnings. That's it, didn't, it didn't deal specifically with, with you know, with policy towards currency valuation. So left right, that was just left. I mean, and trade agreements typically don't yeah. don't do that. The, uh, the the currency has been roughly at, a, at, a, at an even queue in terms of real effective exchange rate. It's been sort of depreciated in nominal terms, roughly in line with the difference in the inflation rate between Vietnam and, uh, and the United States. So now they're falling, they're paid more. You know, they're, that, that's relative to the dollar. So they follow the dollar down, of course, relative the to the other people. Uh, no, in fact, they run a major deficit, a major current account deficit. That's offset, though, by capital inflows. So, but it's, it's you know, it, there's no black, the best way to put it, there's no black market. There's no, there's, black market. There's no you, when you go on the streets, there, you, there's nobody that's trying to offer you money at a different rate than what you get in the bank. So that's usually the best indicator about whether there's pressures on that. Uh, so, in 2001, there was a lot of suspicion about you know, what was Vietnam getting into, again, remembering where they were in 2001. And uh, one of the best things that happened and the things that you would expect is that uh, as soon as those tariffs came down, Vietnamese exports boomed, primarily apparel exports. 
and apparel exports were able to go, grow very quickly because basically you can just um, you know change machine. You don't have to have a lot of new capital investment to uh, to uh, export uh, apparel. And Vietnam had about 18 months where they uh, before the United States applied the multi-fiber agreement or the agreement on, on, on textiles and clothing. So they basically had all their other third world competitors facing a quota that limited their growth, and they had a chance just to grow through the ceiling for about 18 months, which they did. And so those 13, 18 months were dominated by apparel export growth. And then uh, I'll show you later, and you'll see on here the chart, it's going up like this, and then the textile agreement hits and it goes like that. And you see the impact of it, but then it starts going up as they diversify away from, uh, from textiles and apparel. But politically, it was very important and also, I'll give some slides about investment where that was a very strong response. That uh, it raised the um, legitimacy of these trade agreements, raised the legitimacy of, of the reformers. And by 2006 and 2007, when decisions were being made to ratify the WTO accession protocol, which was uh, even more, uh, required even more than in the BTA, there was almost no debate about it. And there was no sense that Vietnam was being taken advantage of or anything like that. They bargained hard in a couple sectors. But clearly, it was, it was clear to them, investment was growing rapidly, growth, uh, growth had popped up a, a, a 1 or 2% trade was growing up. So that BTA really allowed them to gain that confidence that they could be competitive. And, uh, and also, it was labor-intensive. So being labor-intensive, it tended to filter down into a lot of workers. So it wasn't just top-heavy. So of course, that gives you a broader-based uh, growth, which is you know, a lot of what um, of, of happened in the rest of East Asia as well. Um, and now, and then on, on the FDI, and I'll show you again some, some tables on this. Um, in fact, let me just, uh, it's probably easier. Th this, is the, uh, this is the table on, uh, on exports that I just mentioned. And you'll notice, uh, you know, rates like 128%, 90%, uh, and that and very rapid raising uh, line. And that's, and, and two th middle 2003 was then the, within the textile agreement was put in. And again, it, it, it cut it short, but then it started getting up and growing again rapidly. And um, you can see here on, on this, this is the non -manu uh, other manufacturers. So this is other than primary products and other than clothing, you can see that that's beginning to grow very rapidly, uh, which of course is a great sign and that's what you, that's what you want to try to see. Um, I have some slides on the text on the uh, catfish and shrimp uh, anti-dumping cases that that's useful for you to see. Let let's, let me talk about this real quickly. This is uh, the overall impact. Vietnam is always tagged as being little China. So when you're in the United States and you think of Vietnam, you often think about well, what's China doing? Well, Vietnam's going to do that 10 or 15 years later or whatever. Now, as I mentioned earlier, uh, and in fact, let me go back. I'm sorry on this. Let me go back and just. Uh, This is uh, U.S. exports of Vietnam. Now, obviously, it's a bilateral trade agreement, but Vietnam only uh, reduced tariffs in 250 tariff lines. So they didn't make really very many policy changes. So you wouldn't expect the same kind of export growth as reducing U.S. tariffs from 40% down to 4%. But in fact, you did get almost a doubling in, uh, in um, trade between from the United States to Vietnam over the six years. I've got another table chart that I don't have here, but there's another chart that's got it looks at monthly exports and there's these big blips. And it's interesting, but what those blips are is are triple sevens. So almost as soon as the BTA was, when there was normalization, Vietnam signed a major contract with Boeing to sort of offset their reliance, previous reliance on, um, on uh, Airbus and started buying, you know, 
triple sevens out the kazoo. So the top uh, section, that top line there is aircraft. And you can see that there was a, a bulge right after the sign of it, and then it's moderated. Um, but it, but if, you t if you take the aircraft out, you see a steady growth. Uh, that's for U.S. exports, 20% is a just solid growth. But obviously, Vietnamese exports to the United States grew much faster than vice versa. So what you've had is you've had a major uh, trade surplus. And so you think of the trade surplus issues with China, the currency evaluation, evaluation situation in China. Well, that must be the case in, in, uh, in Vietnam. But it's important to, to show that um, uh, the overall, this is the trade surplus of the United States, but the overall uh, trade is in, in, in deficits considerably, and the current account balance is in deficit considerably. This is the rest of the world deficit. So it's this triangular trade that you see in lots of Asia where, uh, you know, Asia, uh, a country might export finer products to the United States, but import all the inputs from other East Asian countries. So you get a kind of trade triangle, and if you look at bilateral statistics, you get funny numbers. And that's why you know, economists don't like you to look at uh, bilateral statistics, but politicians always like to look at bilateral statistics. Um, I'll go with, keep the going with the flow here a little bit. On the economic structure, the BTA also had a lot of the effects that we had hoped it would have. It basically helped shift the Vietnamese economy towards a more export uh, export orientation. Uh, it helped uh, shift it more towards manufactured goods. Uh, it helped it shift it more towards labor-intensive goods. Um, and it helped, uh, and it, it uh, tended to uh, be associated with higher growth rates in manufactured employment. And uh, it helped facilitate a, a, a declining role in, state, in the state sector. So the bottom sec bottom uh, uh, section here is the state sector. The next one is uh, is the foreign sector, and you can see the foreign sector has grown and is quite important. And then there's the the private sector, which has been growing but still relatively small. And I can just go into a quick aside here because it's something that again is different in Vietnam than many other countries. Is that uh, Vietnam is not uh, has a relatively small ethnic Chinese community. And of that ethnic Chinese community, they're not linked to any of the big uh, Asian uh, Chinese groups. And there's basically no large private firms in Vietnam. To agree there are larger private firms, they're, they're, they're state firms or, or foreign firms. So you've got, uh, with, in 2000, they did an enterprise law that made it easy for private firms to register and become official. So you've had a rapid growth in the number of private sector firms in Vietnam, but still hardly any of them were large. Uh, now that's important for various reasons, but one reason is that to get into the production networks in East Asia, typically these networks like to work with private firms, and they like with firms they like to work with firms that are large enough to have some economies in scale. Vietnam doesn't really have those kinds of potential partners that may link, limit Vietnam to move this next this next step in terms of export diversification. Will be not exporting the United States anymore, but exporting components to the uh, systems, the production systems in the region, and until they get that ability uh, to do that with their uh, private sector, uh, they might be limited. Now, interestingly, uh, and it's still on this aside, they're equitizing their state enterprises, and that's an experiment. It's different than uh, other countries have done. The equitization experiment is that they don't fully privatize the company, but they go into a mixed ownership, sometimes minority state-owned, sometimes majority state-owned, but always, almost always maintain some state ownership. So of course the idea, the theory, the thinking is they're going to rationalize management, have better corporate governance, they're going to be more efficient, but the state's still going to have a role, both in terms of getting a cut of the action, but potentially for administrative reasons. 
Now, and, there, and those are larger firms. So one question is, can those move over and sort of fill that gap of larger firms that can then fit into these, these production networks more effectively? That's, that's an open question. And how are these going to work? Are they really going to be more efficient, or are you going to have the state and the private guys fighting each other and, and uh, with very little improvement in, uh, in how you really have governance? And it's an experiment, and it was different than the way China privatized, certainly the way the Chinese these transition economies in the uh, Soviet Union um, privatized. Mm -hmm. Well, you have collective on your chart. But right. No collectives. <clears throat> but uh, so is there, there's nothing uh, like the township village enterprises in China. No, no, and they didn't. Uh, they skipped that. Right, and they, you know that that was a tremendously interesting innovation in China, where you know they allowed sort, you know, they they could build into they they merged the the greed of the greedy interest of the of the local government with 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 market forces. And Vietnam has not done that. And this is sort of the, the other side of it, this idea of, of having the state and public and, and private sector be able to run sort of companies together. But, but it is different than what, um, what China did for sure. Uh -huh. Is there like sufficient amount of data to support like the, like you're talking about how index, have they implemented index SOEs? Like yes, there, there's a, um, all this reform that I've been talking about, I can talk about more, uh, has been going, probably faster than anybody ever expected. The equitization process has been going slower than almost everybody expected. And it, you know, the politics of equitization is always difficult. So it actually is way behind schedule. But in the last year and a half or two years, there's been a number of major firms that have been equitized. And actually it's closely related to the, to the surge in the stock market in Vietnam because those are equitized firms are now coming on the stock market and you're beginning to get an increased supply of good firms that that are you know assets that people want to buy into, but there's still a lot more to do, and there's still a lot of promises. The new government, Vietnam just uh, just elected a new government and signed a new government, and they've all pledged that they'll move fast, quickly in terms of uh, quickening the pace of equalization. They're still going to maintain something like 30, 40 major fully state-owned you know, strategic uh, companies, but everything else is meant to be um, equitized. They they have eliminated I don't know several thousand state-owned enterprises. But the larger ones this is, that we're really looking at, this is where the equitation process is. So it is moving, but it's not moving as fast as people would like to see it move. And has there been data with like increased efficiency like since that time? Yeah, and I don't know. One of the big difficulties about Vietnam is it's not easy to get data. Yeah. And um, there actually, World Bank did a study on, um, on some, some of the initial equitization. And actually, they, you know, one of the things they found is actually that the old full state sector wasn't all that inefficient. Uh, and so there was, wasn't as much difference between the equitized firms and the old state firms as you might expect, but it was a, a much smaller sample and it hadn't dealt with the larger firms. But it, uh, it's not impossible to get that data and it would be very interesting to do more work on it. Uh -huh. uh, economic suggests that the equitized firms and privatized firms behave very differently in terms of Experiments with equalization, I don't know a lot of good results in terms of increasing efficiency. But I wanted to ask, uh, over the last several years, uh, has the role of the VIQ uh, changed very much in terms of either capital or people coming into the country? Well, certainly more come back. Uh, uh, it's around three to four million do billion dollars of uh, expatri expatriated money comes back in, and that's predominantly from overseas uh, Vietnamese. Uh, there are more. Excuse me. That's going to families. Uh, it's not clear how much of that goes in investment at all. 
Um, you know, but, but it goes to families and they use it. Uh, there is very little, I mean, there's very little evidence of, of overseas Vietnamese investing in plants and, you know, in, in terms of, of, of foreign direct investment. Um, so it's just coming in basically as personal, personal capital flows. You do meet more Viet Q, you know, American or, or foreign Viet Qs working in Vietnam. Uh, there's a couple of really sort of small dynamic firms that are developing. Uh, so there is more of a presence than there was when we first got there. But it's certainly not a, a dominating presence, and you know it's, it's interesting. You know, the, all the theory now about uh, the, the talk about the old brain drain, which we were all worried about. Now we find out the brain drain is, is great because they people go overseas and get all these skills and they come back and help you. And for Vietnam, and it relates, as I mentioned earlier, the linkage to the to the big Chinese groups. They don't. They don't. The Vietnamese that are overseas largely are not business people, or if they do, are they're they're small. You know, run restaurants or something. But they tend to be professionals. So they're making money and they're sending money back, but they're not really bringing these business linkages that you would have gotten through the uh, ethnic Chinese families. You are in California. This is the area where you are getting some relationships. Uh, some of the Los Angeles firms are are putting uh, software type development down in Ho Chi Minh City, and uh, you know things like that. And you're uh, some of the you're getting some data uh, development being done. Some of the the, the um, software for the movies and uh, special effects and things are beginning to get done on that. But still in a relatively limited fashion and not, not like some of the other countries in Asia. Uh -huh. oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, on the issue of equitization, I, I'm, I'm concerned about the social consequences of equitization and the issues of unemployment because hundreds of thousands of uh, state workers are possibly laid off as these state-owned companies are being privatized, advertised. Do you have any comment on the, you know, the unemployment, underemployment problems of the state workers were laid off yeah. in this well, process. There, 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 a number of smaller firms were uh, closed, but these other firms aren't laying off anybody. They're hiring. <laughs> I mean, Vietnam's booming, and it's certainly nice to, it, it's a nice time to do this rationalization because there is a lot of uh, demand for other workers. You're beginning, real wages are going up. Um, but, but as far as I know, there's no evidence of, of sort of rationalizing labor. Vietnam's got very strong labor laws. It's hard uh, to, uh, to, to, to lay people off. And certainly if the state maintains a, a part of that, of that relationship and the ownership, they'll, they'll tend to be not less layoffs. So there hasn't, it hasn't been one of these things where they're closing, you know, closing down. There, there wasn't, the, the state sector, uh, there weren't that many factories there anyway that were in the state sector. But so there, I don't think there's any evidence that that, that, that is, is causing social uh, disruption. Because from what I've read in the Vietnamese newspapers, uh, they sell stock, the shares to the workers. Right. Most of them are not very rich, and they can, you know, they, they have this lump sum of money uh, from from these shares, and then they would just use it for consumption. So, sure. so they're not using that for their education for long term development. So they're not obtaining the skills. Well, you know, it's, it's some people are, some people aren't, and there are, you know, there's reports about abuse and people buying those shares. Um, you know the. In, in these acquisition processes, uh, there's, it's, it's widely realized that they are underestimate, undervaluing the, S, the, the, the land that's, that's in these companies. So that, that in large part, a lot of the companies are undervalued. So people really are anxious to get those, those stock certificates. And they are going to the workers. But the workers aren't getting laid off unless they, again, unless they were in the, in the smaller firms that, uh, that had to be rationalized, as, as far as I know. And I'm not an expert on acquisition. And Nick? Steve, the household. Uh, firms are they um, distinguished by small size of employees or assets, or what distinguishes that from the formal private sector? Yeah, and I have to. I don't really don't. I don't know much about that. 
Um, what it, what it is is that they are not registered companies. And, uh, and it's also like Gertie, who in China listed ideal fuel employees versus. Yeah, I don't know that very well. Yeah, you know, Martin Robin, people at the World Bank, they're doing a lot more work the, with the household surveys and that type of thing. And I just haven't been able to keep up with, with, with what's going on with that. Uh, let me ask you a later question. Um, what you're seeing is the share in manufacturing output of that household sector forward. Does that mean that some of those firms are growing larger and moving to the formal private sector, or would you just say it's attrition because the rest of the economy is expanding so far? Um, well, it's, par it's partly just a share issue that the, everybody else is growing fast, so it's pushing them down lower. Um, there's a, there's a, you know, I, I don't know where the, the 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 line is between a household and, you know, there, there you walk the cities of, of Vietnam and there's just there's just so many, you know, so many retail shops with lots of stuff and not very many customers, <laughs> and and I presume those are all registered. Uh, and but then you go down the next step, and what people are doing out of their houses and things like that. I, I just, I'm sorry, I just don't know that uh, that very well. Uh -huh. um, what about the environmental um, requirements? Um, we've all seen with China with its incredibly rapid development. There's been worldwide impact in terms of air quality and uh, working conditions for health considerations for workers. Is Vietnam following the Chinese model in terms of environmental um, issues and using? You know, as they're developing, are they using all of the advances we've made in terms of having uh, industries be cleaner and less polluting, or is that just a luxury that they're not looking at right now? I, I think that the answer is pretty much no. Um, it's more like certainly, you know, just going back, uh, the trade agreements and sort of international policy is not has it, it, that's not been a major impact. Vietnam's been a very poor place, and so people are excited; it's getting better off. Um, there are studies that show that the uh, air, for instance, is getting worse in the big cities. Water is bad in a lot of places. Uh, again, they're, they're still almost still pre-industrial, so they're just beginning to build factories. And they don't have many heavy factories. Now, cement uh, it can be polluting. Uh, they've got a minimal amount of fertilizer. They don't have steel. So some of the real heavy industry that are, that are really big polluters, they do have a lot of coal in the north, and they're transiting over from a reliance on, hy on hydropower into more coal-fired plants, and and to the degree that's done with foreign investors, they probably will use higher levels of technology on that. And again, it's something I don't know a lot about, but I I don't think uh, I'm sure they're not as conscientious as you might like, or a lot of other people might like. Well, we're just hearing that green can pay, and that right. there's no reason why emergency emerging economies need to go through the same pollution that we did with our own industrial right. revolution. Right. And so are we making an effort to share with these developing economies what we've learned to the benefit of everybody, yeah. to their economic yeah. development, and you're saying right now the answer is no. Right. And that also goes back a little bit to how small the U.S. foreign assistance is to Vietnam. And we've made very low investment. The vast amount of us in HIV AIDS, we've got a large HIV AIDS mm -hmm. project. But other than that, we, you know, it's uh, the economic, the AID project is basically two, two or three projects. Well, it's not just the U.S., it's the yes. whole developed world versus the Yeah, but often, you know, often, it's often the kind of assistance money that facilitates that kind of discussion. It's harder to happen uh, if you don't have somebody, you know, funding that. Uh-huh. Uh, Steve, can you, can you, you've, you've, you've talked mostly from a, from a U.S.-Vietnam uh, bilateral perspective so far, um, and I wonder if you could bring in some of the other actors that, that uh, are in the Vietnamese economy. You've mentioned in some of your slides that the U.S. is one of the largest FDI 
Um, but who, who else is engaged in that? And what else are they doing? Um, uh, to, to what extent do we have other, other uh, I should know this, but to what extent are there other bilateral trade agreements with other countries uh, that are either uh, in place or in works? Um, and how, how do you compare uh, what the U.S. presence is with, with China, Japan, and whoever else is probably out there in, big, in a big way? Well, in terms of the uh, bilateral trade agreements, uh, most of the governments negotiated those in 94, 95, and there were two or three pages. It was just, uh, they just did it, and they, you know, the U.S. does things in a big way. So we, we made them jump through all these hoops. Almost all the other countries just did a, a quick two or three page um, uh, paper that said that you could have MFN treatment, and actually with, with a, a lack of clarity as to whether that even applied to services. It was largely, in large part, just on goods. Um, in terms of investment and sort of presence, that uh, Japan's got a major presence. Um, and one of the things I'll, sh I'll talk about right now is an investment. Um, if you, it's, um, it's interesting, uh, if you look at how you measure foreign direct investment, you measure of capital flows from one country to another country. But multinationals don't make decisions like that, and particularly not U.S. multinationals, because there's the tax regime makes it difficult to take money that you earn overseas, bring it back to the United States, and take it back. So U.S. multinationals uh, would tend, you would think, would tend to invest in Vietnam from overseas subsidiaries. And we uh, did a study of that where we went back into all the investment projects in Vietnam to um, to look to see to what degree. Um, there was investment from overseas subsidiaries. And if you look at this at the, this bottom graph here, this is the, the official sort of typical IMF measure of US foreign direct investment to Vietnam. It's very small, we're the 13th largest investor. Singapore is typically the second or third largest investor to first relative to Japan and Taiwan and Korea. If you look at, at this, this one, this shows what we call U.S. related investment, which we just made up, but it's basically the bilateral flows from the United States to Vietnam and added into foreign direct investment that came from uh, U.S. 100% owned for overseas uh, uh, subsidiaries, of which large part is Singapore. So most of the Singapore investment in Vietnam is actually U.S. firms uh, investing into Singapore. Now, I mean, in, in Vietnam, and the, the U.S. ambassador loved this because he was always getting trashed on why wasn't the U.S. Uh, more raising investment faster. And so if you look at, this is an implemented FDI, uh, the, the related FDI is eight times higher than what has been traditionally measured. And then very importantly for us, if you look here, this is post-BTA. If you look down here, there was hardly any major uh, improvement in FDI relative to the BTA. If you only look at the, the normal FDI, if you look at the, at the U.S. related, you see a boom. And uh, so U.S. firms did take advantage of the better legal framework uh, in Vietnam, but they did it largely through their subsidiaries. And interesting, not just Singapore, but uh, importantly, uh, Holland. Holland's a, a major base because they've got a very good set of bilateral tax agreements, and they've got a good tax agreement with, uh, with uh, Vietnam. And so actually a lot of U.S. multinationals do their foreign investment out of, um, out of Holland. And again, they don't want to take the money, bring the money back into the um, United States. Um, so th th this, is sort of, this is interesting. Now, I can, this, is a, this is a bit of a, of a jumble, but this looks at, at uh, foreign direct investment to give you a sense of the other countries that you're talking about. And th then if you get up to the U.S. related, we actually are the largest, export, uh, largest investor in 2004. And uh, Holland, and then Korea, Japan, Japan had it off here, it went back up to 2005. 
we did not pull, and this we didn't pull the subsidiary investment out of out of Singapore. So this this there's double counting. So Singapore, for instance, would still uh, would still include uh, the U.S. investment. But these are the countries that typically have the largest amount of investment. Now I think you all know Intel is just is going to invest in a billion dollars plant in Ho Chi Minh City. Now if you go back to this chart, this graph, this looks at overall foreign investment. And this increase, rapid increase in 2005 and 2006 of registered FDI partly reflects, this reflects about 600 million of the, uh, of the Intel uh, plan investment, 2007 Moralcom. And then you'll see the implemented line going up uh, in, in tandem once the, uh, the money actually comes in. You also see the, 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 the spike, the, the, the run that Vietnam had back pre-crisis. Pre but very little of the money that was registered to come in during the mid-90s were actually implemented. But this time, we, we, everybody expects the implemented number to just follow the, uh, the registered number. But it shows the boom in investment that's, uh, that's occurring now in Vietnam. And it's partly uh, a, a, an element of that is that it, another gap, we talked about the implementation gap a little bit earlier, but there's also a major infrastructure gap. And that infrastructure gap, both the social infrastructure and physical infrastructure, but it's infrastructure where you get some real large projects. So you build a you build a, a energy plant or things like that. They're billion they're billion dollars. You're going to see more and more of these infrastructure projects come in. That's going to get this number going up all the the faster. Um, the, the foreigners are still not building large factories in Vietnam. The factories they're building are still mid level. Uh, so there's a lot of factories, but they're not they're not large. Uh, and whether, when and to when they start actually getting larger, that'll be uh, interesting to see. Why Holland? This, this is a trivial question. Why not France? Well, my understanding now, when I talk uh, when I talk to the corporations, the companies, they say that uh, it's because Holland has such a good set of tax agreements. So they actually, um, you know, uh, subsidiaries, Unical, places like that, they actually do a lot of their overseas investment out of Holland. And I guess it's also probably close. You know, it's a good. It's got a good banking system. They probably can raise money there well. But but my what I've been told by the companies is because they've got a good tax agreement. So there's meaning, a comfort level. Meaning that the investor gets to take home more money. Well meaning that, that yeah all these issues of double taxation that you have when you invest in a foreign country, uh, particularly in the United States, you got you know you gotta pay taxes domestically and foreign. So you've got to work out how you offset those. Mm -hmm. So you don't pay taxes, you know, double taxes. Mm -hmm. And so that's that's a, a real important part of these tax agreements. And Holland doesn't have that. Holland does have it. Holland has a very good set of tax agreements that minimize the exposure of corporations to this double taxation. That's that's what people told me on that. Another thing that's very interesting is um, in the last two years, there's been a, a surge of um, of indirect investment. So uh, we've been talking about foreign direct investment, indirect investment, primarily coming in in terms of uh, in terms of equity. Uh, and um, the um, we did actually it was the first study done, but it was a very anecdotal study. We basically had dinner at lunches with all the the uh, the uh, people that were running the investment funds, 
and asked them a bunch of questions about what they were doing, and they gave us some rough numbers, and we put it here. These numbers are now out of date by almost a factor of 10 in just a year. My understanding is funds are coming in now at billion-dollar levels, whereas we were excited when they were $100 million just a year ago. A lot of indirect investments coming. We did a lot of work supporting the new securities law that, that lays a good legal framework for, uh, for this investment. This investment's coming in partly into the formal stock market. There's a very large informal stock market, uh, and money's coming into that, and then there's a lot of private placement that's going on. And, um, and then you see uh, a rapid increase in, uh, uh, in uh, stock prices. But on the other side, with this equitization we were talking about, more and more good, um, good assets are coming on the market. So you're getting more supply of things for people to buy. So that moderates some of the uh, price increases. But again, when these hedge funds and everybody, there's all these rumors about a hedge fund coming in with you know, multi-billion dollars, which is a very small part of their overall <coughs> portfolio but a very large impact on Vietnam. So a lot of money, a lot of indirect money is coming in now, and uh, you know, it's, it's just very much at the beginning of how that's going to, uh, what, what kind of impact it's going to have. So with, with this uh, surge of indirect investment going into Vietnam, it correlates with the drive of the price of the stock market up, but how does that correlate with the manufacturing good growth that you showed in the plot earlier, which only increased about 2 to 5% each year? Is there a big gap uh, in between the no, I, I guess I'm not sure. What, what, where would I have uh, manufactured? You had a plot that shows the increase in manufacturer output uh, for foreign and, and private ownership, which increased about 3 to 5% each year, but that doesn't track with the stock market value. Well, I've got a, uh, man, uh, manufacturing going a lot higher than that, so I don't know if, if I, I, I guess you'd have to show me which. Uh, is that on here? Yeah, so structural change in the This one right here? Yes. Oh, this is just, this, is, this doesn't say the, the growth of manufacturing. This is the percentage, uh, you know, the, the overall economy is growing at 8%. And then, uh, and, and this, uh, this um, so this is just looking at the structure within manufacturing of, of the, the distribution of ownership. But manufacturing sector, I think, is growing 15 to 20 percent. Um, but the but the the indirect equity coming in is not necessarily only going to manufacturing. In fact, a lot of it's going to tourism, hotels, and a lot of money is going to hotels and, and real estate and building office buildings, things a lot along that. And some are going into uh, into services. Um, again, as an aside, another thing that's really sort of um, uh, the 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 increase in indirect investment. It's clearly a sign that internationally people have greater confidence in the institutional structure and the legal structure of Vietnam. You, you know, you, you're now putting money in that, that could be risky money. Equity is always risky, and you've got to be able, sure you can pull it out, and you've got to be sure that your basic rights, you've got basic property rights on that. Going back a, a step further, uh, in the banking system, uh, Vietnam is seeing a, a huge surge in terms of deposits in, in formal financial intermediaries and life insurance companies. Uh, before 2000, very few Vietnamese put their money in a bank. I, I remember the first time I went to 1993, I went and talked to the Vietnamese lady that was running the branch manager for Standard Charter Bank in Ho Chi Minh City. And so I was asked, trying to learn how they operate, so I asked her, well, how do you do your banking? And she said, well, I would never put my money in a bank. <laughs> and I buy furniture. And then if there's a problem, there's a market down there I can sell the furniture. So you know, every, you know, people did not put their money in formal financial institutions. In the last six years, deposits in the banking, both the private banks and the state banks, 
are just skyrocketing again. And money going into life insurance companies are, are skyrocketing. And that's changing the whole environment because now you're, again, having intermediation and that money is then being offloaded into investment. So in the old days, if you need to borrow money, you had to do it through basically through your friends. And now you can get it through a formal uh, financial environment. But the, um, uh, the capabilities of the banks to really do full risk assessment is not mature. And the prudential supervisory capabilities of the state bank is quite immature. And so you've got this risk of a lot of money now coming in the formal system, but the regulatory environment is not as good as it should be. And again, Vietnam is struggling to try to catch up with that. They're going to do a new law on, on bank supervision. But it gets at a, another issue of a real challenge is basically developing the capability to do indirect regulation or indirect management of the economy. Uh, in the old days, the state bank could just call in the manager of the state-owned enterprise, the state bank, and tell them what to do. Now they need data. There's very little data on the financial markets in Vietnam. We don't have a, we don't have a report on the, the balance sheet of the banking system in Vietnam. I mean, it's, it's just terrible. And of course, they're going to have to, you know, as they move into indirect monetary policy and so on and so forth, they've got to get a lot better data. <laughs> so you can't use Milton Friedman's rule for the growth in the money supply to control the price of Nope. Mm -hmm. Nobody knows anything, has any idea what the money supply is. <laughs> so, in effect, the exchange rate is the anchor, right? Even though it's slowly depreciating. And then you sort of build monetary policy around that. Yeah. And it's going to, you know, there's, uh, it's another area that's really going to have to mature in terms of their ability. It's going to get much more complicated as more internet, as they get more globalized, more international money can, 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 can come in and out. I have a question about this, and that is, uh, you probably got it here somewhere, but do you have a sense of the, the relative contributions of, of shorter-term portfolio inflows to, to FDI as, as contributors to the overall balance of payments? And I ask because, because of course, if you've got a country that has a, a widening current account deficit and then has a pegged currency and it's opening and liberalizing its markets, then and just like the 15 years behind the demographics, who would want Vietnam be 15 years behind on the financial crisis? Right. And 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 so so one concern obviously is that as portfolio flows skyrocket like they did last year, right. they become they become too heavy in terms of that overall right. BOP calculus. Right. So there's more more risk. Yeah. I, I don't know that. I mean, it's again, I uh, the balance of payment figures don't allow you to disaggregate like that. But we we it's an important question to ask, and we should know that better. One thing that came out of our anecdotal study, and again, this goes back that we're looking a lot at the bilateral relationship, is that when we talked to the fund manager, between one-third and one-half of the money that was coming in as of last summer was American money, uh, just re reinforcing the, the importance of the American role with, with development in Vietnam. And um, uh, now, again, this, this huge surge again that we haven't gone back and, and spoken with them. But that's very much the kinds of issues that that the government needs to cope with, that they're, and they're not really, they're not understanding that and building the capabilities up fast enough to be able to deal with those kinds of issues, those vulnerabilities. I was amazed when you and I spoke when I was in, in my treasury role, how difficult it was for us as the counterparty to get access to that very important breakdown, mm -hmm. and, and we never really had a satisfactory yeah. Well, I think it was just a year or two ago that they refused to, you know, to publicize the foreign exchange reserves. And that's one of the reasons why IMF sort of, uh, you know, lowered their their program there. And I think you know, I, I'm seeing reports now of foreign exchange reserves. But uh, but you're right. It, it, that's a it, it's an area. It, it, you know, 
my rationalization of all that is that in Vietnam, a lot of the reforms are being driven really sort of by lawyers and politicians and with the, guide, the guidance of these trade agreements. And there's not very many economists in the system. And my, by my best guess is there's probably 10 Western-trained PhD economists in Vietnam. Um, and, uh, and they're not involved with policy. So you don't have policymakers asking questions that require empirical results and data to make decisions. They're making it based on the trade agreement or a political decision or understanding the law. And what we need to, there's a lot of data out there. I mean, it's not like people aren't collecting data. It's just nothing's organized. And so what we need is, is leadership to start asking those kinds of questions so that we can, and investing then in, in, the, uh, in data collection to, so that we can get those, those better answers. Huh? I'm going to ask, excuse my question. Well, I'm not even, so. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, you mentioned before that other countries are different from Vietnam, so we actually have a strong interest from a, a separate group um, that would actually create um, a new model of business in Vietnam and creates a private sector. Uh, what Vietnam lacks is that group. Now, say if um, the Viet Hue continue, if there are people interested, and um, going towards that direction, usually what type of support would they be searching for in Vietnam? Is it because they're so far behind in the game that the government is no link between a high incentive here for the government so that we have a new way of thinking created? And is that going to be a big problem in the foreseeable future? Well, I think, again, a lot, a lot of this is anecdotal from what I know, and it's not as sophisticated thinking. but. Um, from what I know, I, I, there are just not very many overseas Vietnamese that are doing hardcore, high-level business. So it's not natural. It's not like they've got a major business and they can just open up a subsidiary in Vietnam and start exporting or importing. So the the, the community is not as likely to go there and get involved, you know, in, in the in the in the growth of business as uh, maybe you know some other countries might be. Um, there is legally Viet Q do have more rights than other foreigners, uh, and they are supposed to be able to own land easier and so on and so forth. They're supposed to be able to get longer visas, but a lot of that is still in practice is still up in the air as to as to how uh, you know some of the reforms have been made. But and when talking to some overseas Vietnamese, they tell me they're still not that easy. They, overseas are supposed to be able to get a five-year visa now. And you know, again, they're supposed to be able to go out and get, go back, you know, buy some of the, the old land and everything. Some people done, but a lot of people, I think, may have tried and didn't find it successful. Do you find that that, that um, attempt at making it easier for Vietnam is that from the government or where is that coming from? Is the government trying to make it easier? Well, that that's coming from the party. I mean, the party and the government. They want to try to reconcile, um, you know, the the ongoing differences. The, when, a lot, when the Vietnamese delegations come to the United States, they are increasingly trying to go to, to the uh, overseas Vietnamese communities to, you know, try to build relationships and smooth the, you know, smooth the, the, the difficult feelings, uh, historic feelings. Right. Steve, lot, lots of uh, great stuff here in economic analysis of, of Vietnam. And before I say what I'm going to say about the Vietnamese legal system, I'm more bullish about Vietnam than perhaps any other country on the face of the earth today. But the legal system is not is not the 
the, the cause of what we're seeing here. These 93 laws uh, supported by STAR and 69 passed, it, it may eventually contribute to an, an infrastructure, but that's, that's not the story. In post-World War II, rule of law has not been the cause of growth. Other things have been the cause of growth, and rule of law tends to, to follow afterward, and Vietnam is, is no different. The person who asked the question about the uh, 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 legal system and whether the personnel in the legal system are up to the task, uh, you say five years, Steve, I, I say 10, 15, 20 sure. years. I mean, China is, is an example of that. It's, uh, it's had massive turnover in its uh, uh, legal personnel over the last uh, 20 years, and it's developing a base, but it's a really, it's a long-term uh, sure. long process. And accordingly, I'd like to, to argue that you know, the BTA was a, was a major breakthrough in relations, and, and all of your data uh, showed that all of the positive things that, that, that flowed from that. But I'd, I'd like to suggest that it was, a, it, was a, it was a political breakthrough and it wasn't a legal breakthrough. And what we're seeing in, in portfolio investment, in, uh, uh, even in Intel and the like, it's not, they're doing their risk assessment, but the performance of the legal uh, system is, is not something that factors positively into that, uh, into that risk assessment. Well, I think uh, you're definitely right that uh, it's not going to happen overnight. And when I spoke about the five years, it's really the next legislative calendar. And again, a lot of the legal, the institutional legal reforms is going to take a long time, clearly, for any government, but certainly for the Vietnamese government. And you've got some fundamental issues. And, you know, as we paint this rel relatively rosy, uh, rosy um, prospects, you, 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 you do have to ask at what stage is there going to be a... Um, um, a breakdown in the sort of mutuality of party control and independence. So, real independence of the courts, real regulatory uh, independence, so on and so forth. And at some stage, you know, you're going to get improvements, but then is it going to come to a stop? Because you, you know, there there'll be a reluctance to go any further. But I, I guess it depends how you define rule of law. I mean, you know, nobody <coughs> likes the, the court system, and now even though there's been a lot of changes, but the rule of law, in my view. There, I guess the maybe you know what I might be hearing you say is what I think I say. There's there's clearly a greater trust in the um, in the ability for the government and the party to define uh, uh, basic core rights for business people and, and people, basic property rights, uh, increasingly to be able to enforce a contract, uh, you know, exp expropriation rights, things like that. So that is, and that's that's an important part of the law. Transparency that people have a chance to know what all the laws are. That you can comment on the laws, um, at least in paper. That you can complain against those laws in the court system. So to me, that's an important part of the rule of law. Uh, it it it's, it still doesn't mean that that they trust the judges in terms of resolving a a, a personal dispute. But I think there is a. I don't think you can have this kind of growth if you don't have a basic trust in property rights and, and other kinds of things that are very much. Um, legally based and very much reflective of people's trust that that they can get a fair deal relative to you know to political leadership if they've got a dispute. Is that saying the same thing that you're saying, or saying well, something kind different? of? I mean, there's there's in, informal uh, security that people develop in, in doing business in, in Vietnam. Yeah, see, I would say it's not informal. I, I don't think it would be growing as much if it was purely informal. Uh, and I think Vietnam is different than than you know the. Uh, I think there is a greater respect for the rule of law in Vietnam than there may have been in other parts of East Asia 20, 30 years ago. 
Well, the, the, I mean, the rule of law specialists that, that I interact with in Vietnam have, have become suicidal and have left the country. I mean, in, in, as, you know, building these institutions from the ground up, they, they aren't working. Other things are working. And, and certainly the, the overall political environment for the enforcement of these agreements is incredibly improved. But it, I don't, it doesn't have anything to do with the performance of the formal uh, legal system, which has not improved that much over this early period in rapid economic growth. Well, it'd be interesting. I mean, it'd be interesting to look at that more carefully because I guess I think I disagree with that. Um, but if I could but, cut in, I, I think this is a good. Uh, we have a de facto Q and A in yeah. operation, as I'm sure you know. Maybe we should make it de jure as well. Um, Eric's uh, slightly cautionary remark, I think, segues into the comment that I was going to make, which is perhaps a little bit. Uh, uh, contrarian here. Um, we haven't given you the opportunity to give us your bottom line, and it's therefore <laughs> presumptuous of me to provide it for you. <laughs> but you will. <laughs> but being an academic, <laughs> uh, the bottom line that I hear from your talk, your talk is about two things. It's about reform and it's about growth. And the bottom line is this is win-win. This is a virtuous spiral. That is to say, reform generates growth. Growth legitimizes reform and enables more reform, which generates more growth, et cetera, et cetera. Okay? Now, perhaps this was implicit in what Eric said. This seems a tad frictionless to me. I mean, let me be very specific here. When you arrived in 2001, Vietnam was quite different from what it was in February of this year when you left. I mean, I know you've been back since. Um, usually in a reform process, there are compromises, there are stratagems. It's interesting that one word you haven't used at all is corruption. Now, perhaps this is a little bit excessively playful, but I can understand situations in which corruption could be a servant of reform. Sure. Insofar as corruption means that people buy into the process who would otherwise have opposed it. And so then it becomes You're a kind from Indonesia. Of, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and we'll talk about your honorarium later. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, I know. I know. There's a lot of similarity there, I realize. But also, on the other side, obviously, I can see the sense in which corruption is an obstacle to reform. So what I'm asking you is the kind of anthropology of what you were up to. I mean, there must have been individuals in the military, in the party, highly placed people who could block what you wanted to do. Now, what stratagems, what, what sort of maneuvers, what compromises did you make on the ground in order to move the form incrementally forward? Well, it goes back to why they back to why people did the reform. Obviously, we didn't do the reform. People made the decisions of the reform. And it goes back to that political calculus I mentioned in terms of political legitimacy, that they had to create these jobs, and they had to then to, to do the economic reforms that were required. They were starting from a very low level, so in fact there weren't a lot of trade-offs. There wasn't a lot of people that took losses. Now, um, Dan Okimoto laid out an earlier today, in discussions with him, uh, another kind of scenario saying that, well, as things get better, then the party is going to carve out niches where they, that are basically niche, niches right. of corruption, where they can uh, take a larger cut than they cur can, they're currently taking, and that will cause problems and the growth is not going to be linear. And again, I, you know, 
uh, I tend to be optimistic, but my, my sense, when we work with the party, they were traditionally always more liberal than the ministries. Now, they're all in the Communist Party, but the Communist Party is a very big tent. And the Communist Party itself had very little money and very little access to day-to-day -day operations of the government. The line ministries were the people you had to get something approved from or had some kind of authority over state enterprises. That's where the money was. And in Vietnam, the money was a trickle compared to Indonesia. But still, the, that's where the money was. So there was times when we would actually go to the party and help inform the party about what international best practice was, what the BTA requirements were, to help in the process of, of building consensus with a vested interest ministry. And we'd also go to the National Assembly, which had a whole different, you know, a different set of, 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 um, of, of interests, and typically not, not very strong direct financial interests. So, um, so there, you know, those kinds of things did happen, but in large part, the party uh, tended to be more liberal. They've been pushing for improved corruption, although there's obviously corruption in the party. Um, and, um, and I could take that back to being, they're doing it in their self-interest because that's what establishes the legitimacy that allows them to main state on as a one-party state. Uh, but they haven't yet, I don't know if they will, but they haven't yet used that as a way to make themselves super rich. Now, that being said, when you talk to young people around Vietnam, there's certain people, you know, kids that are well-connected, they're driving fancy cars. Nobody had cars even before. And there is this, you know, uh, tension that's being developed with some people that are well-connected right. that now seem to have some wealth. And some of them are in the party and some of them are in other kinds of important positions. But I guess my feeling on that is that at least today, um, the, uh, the party um, has had a higher, you know, they, they want to maintain their legitimacy by basically doing things to keep, that help people get better off. It's important in the rule of law, for instance, the, um, you know, it's, it's the party people that we spoke to were really tired about people calling them up on the phone to resolve a dispute. So in the old days, you go to the chief or you go to, you know, you go to the person with power to resolve a dispute. And as Vietnam got bigger and more modern, they couldn't do that. And they actually were very strong. They've got two um, uh, decisions from the Politburo. They're very strong in improving the judicial environment and the legal environment, all within market socialism. And in large part, they want the day-to-day -day hassles of life. They want to develop a set of institutions that can help solve those in ways that people aren't going to complain. At the same time, it's pretty clear they're not going to give complete independence and lose complete control of that process. And of course, that's, the, that's part of the tension. But it's very much in their self-interest to develop a system that resolves these, these disputes more effectively. And it, and it just adds to their leg legitimization. So, and I guess, you know, it's being a cynical versus an optimist, but, but I, haven't seen, I haven't seen greed in that process at the party level, actually. You do see it sometimes at the ministry by party, by, by party officials. Uh -huh. I just want to contribute to this discussion. Um, I'm speaking more from an anecdotal perspective with uh, so, so BSVN, <laughs> uh, which is a, it's a group of uh, about 1,500 members who uh, do business in Vietnam uh -huh. and here. What's it called again? The Navy Strategic Ventures Network, uh -huh. which is organized uh, a technology conference uh, a month ago. And I want to answer some of the questions here about VQ's uh, role. And part of their role is economic, and part of the role is also um, strategy. Um, because the VQ, if you look at the VQ enterprise, does everybody know what the VQ? Vietnamese broad. Yeah. That. The question was, well, what 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 is VQ's role in, in Vietnam? And I think it's kind of um, not accurate to say um, that VQ does not have a role because 
a lot of the push that comes from uh, big companies are actually by big you in the, behind the scenes. A lot of the things that go from the in the American companies in American companies. And so if, you, if you're taking if you if you're not looking at the BQ's role within American companies, then you say, yeah, BQ's not playing any role. But there's a lot of BQ's who are behind the scenes working with big American companies like Intel and Microsoft and HP. Those guys are actually doing things. And when big American companies going to Vietnam, they go to these guys. Um, and so economically, BQ play a big role. Uh, in Vietnam, and most of the country managers for big countries are BQ. A lot of them. A lot of them are. Oh, but for FedEx, for instance, is one. Intel is another. And so the ones I work with are the, the Intel. The person setting up the Intel plans BQ. No, he's not. The, the the plan is not. But the country manager is a BQ. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. So there's a lot of tensions there because the it, it's interesting when you talk to the BQs because the Vietnamese sort of uh, expect to be able to call in. Vietnamese chips, <laughs> in a sense, that they wouldn't call in from a foreigner. So sometimes it can be awkward. But, it, 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 but, that, it, it, but I think that's very interesting. And the other, the other, the, the other thing about VQ that addresses his question about well, what's an on-the-ground strategy, a lot of the VQ that left in 75 because of the war um, had family members and have strong family sure. connections with, uh, like their cousin or their uncle was, you know, didn't agree with the democratic system or part of the northern uh, part of the Communist Party, sure. and a lot of them have gone up to positions of power. So there's a lot of people who do business over here who still keep in contact with their relatives and contacts in Vietnam, and they're working behind the scenes telling you guys, hey, you got to reform, you got to change, because if you don't, there's things that are going to happen, and it's not going to be good for you. Yeah. And so they're working behind the scenes, and I think a lot of that um, has to do with some of the, some of the re reasons why um, Vietnam is reforming. And I actually tend to agree with this gentleman's comment that I don't think the law is the cause, but it's more the effect of what's going on in Vietnam as a more of a macro level. And a big reason that is what VQ outside the country is doing, both economically and politically with their positions of, of relationships with people in authorities. Because I, you know, there's, there's many people I know who have private meetings with the prime minister when he comes over here, the president when he comes over here, and you know, one, you know, somebody's uncle is the minister sure, of this and sure. minister of that. And these private relationships and these private talks do I'm sure do cost things. I mean, I, I know, for instance, that supposedly there was the prime. There's there's basically two factions in Vietnam, and the prime minister has been, you know, there was a bomb that was you know put at the prime minister's house. It's not been publicly noted, but there's there's a tension between the military and the reformists mm -hmm. who wants to hold on to power. And so, I think a lot of it has to do with the and, and I'm not to say that, that they're overplaying the Q's role, but they they do have a role in that. Yeah, that's that's good. You should. Write, write something up on that. <laughs> but I'm sure you're right that family relationships and all that always has a, you know, a lot of influence on things. We normally quit after 90 minutes, so we've got about another eight or nine. I, I guess, I don't know, maybe this is an old-fashioned idea, but I sort of have always believed economically that a country's resources and the hard labor of its people should somehow have a payoff for the people in that country. Um, it, you know, that in terms of educational opportunities, clean drinking water, a healthful environment, those kinds of things that we all take for granted as our birthright as being here. And that was promised under NAFTA, uh, which hasn't really come to pass. And as we look at our own immigration demands, we know that, that NAFTA did not, it wasn't the magic bullet that it was represented to be. You know, a lot of people got rich, but not necessarily life improving for Mexicans. 
and in China, you know, they're incredible. 80% every day you turn around in terms of their output. Uh, but what that's, we know it's being balanced on the backs of the laborers who still don't have access to education. They don't have access to clean water. They don't have those kinds of things. And wherever the profits, well, maybe you think it does. But so what's going to happen for Vietnam? And are the main benefits going to go to, uh, is it going to, what pattern is it going to follow in terms of life really being better for the people who for 2,000 years as they were trying to take hold of their own destinies? Okay. Well, you know, Vietnam was almost the poorest country in the world in the 1980s, as poor as any sub-Saharan African country. And literally, almost every person in Vietnam is better off now than they were 15 or 20 years ago. Well, almost every single the person. The American War and the French before that. No, no I'm just talking about it. But so every in the family, <laughs> even a 20 or 25 year old, you know, when they were a kid, they were under the subsidy period when there was almost nothing. So people, almost everybody is better off. And one of the you know the nice the the things about the East Asian sort of growth process is that. When you open up the market, you tend, and particularly when you globalize, you tend to increase demand for uh, low, lower skilled labor because that's what they're, they're most uh, efficient in. And that's got the advantage then that this spreads the benefits to a large number of people. So average farmers and average workers tend to benefit from the first stages of labor export growth. Uh, and in, large, in a lot of cases, moving to the market. But uh, so you do have sort of broad-based growth. And, and, uh, but now Vietnam is, when you look at the income distribution, they are beginning to see a wider income distribution. That's always a funny number in my view because the poor uh, side is, it, the, the, Vietnam has reduced poverty about as fast as anybody ever has in history. I mean, there's been a dramatic reduction in poverty in 20 years, it's continuing. Real wages are beginning to go up. So people that are poor are clearly getting better off, but you are seeing some rich people come in that weren't there 15 years ago. And that's causing the income distribution levels to get a little bit worse. But I, I think, you know, uh, They've done polls in Vietnam. Uh, they've done international polls about who are the most optimistic people in the world. And Vietnam is always almost the top. I mean, the people are opti People in Vietnam. It's not just us talking around here. People in Vietnam are optimistic. Now, not to say that they don't have a lot of things that they're going to have to worry about and struggle through in the near future. But uh, so far, they. I think people do feel that they are getting benefits out of, um, you know, what, what's going on. I really uh, support what you were just saying, and, and, and I really do think that the labor-intensive uh, labor export growth strategy is not really a long-term good growth strategy for Vietnam. Look at the case of uh, East Asian countries, Japan, the development state framework. They, the, the, the government played a very proactive role in terms of creating those competitive advantage, not letting their workers to always assemble cheap uh, uh, manufacturing products, they move, they create the, 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 the advantage for, for their workers to, to, to obtain higher skills and higher knowledge, to get into a more capital information intensive industries. That's the path to go. And if you look at Vietnam now with the, I think that the government now is suffering, I mean, it's dealing with all of the contradictions of that kind of labor intensive black growth. Um, that, that you see the, all the statistics about uh, the majority of the exports in Vietnam are basically based on cheap labor products, textile and garment products, for example, or food processing. It's not like electronics, it's not like information technologies. So I, I do not think that that, that strategy is it's good for Vietnamese long-term equitable development, as you said. Well, I, yeah, I, I don't, you know, I, I don't believe in sort of a this kind of low wage trap. It's certainly not in a place like Vietnam. But what drives the, the what you're talking about are two things. 
one that's happening and one that's not happening as well. What drives it fundamentally is real wages start going up, and you no longer can compete. The labor market's tighten. You have to become more productive. You've got to you know, build the human capital or the capital or productivity to be able to compete, and that accommodates higher levels of growth. Now, to do that, you're exactly right. You have to have good investment in education and health and in infrastructure, and Vietnam is definitely lagging behind in that. And, they're, and uh, partly for fiscal constraints, because they don't have that much money, partly for political constraints in terms of opening up the university systems and things like that. So, Do they have the tax base? Well, How can you provide services without the tax base? Right, right. Well, it's hard. And that, I mean, that's, uh, they're, they're reforming their taxes, but that limits their ability to do that. And they, they benefited from the old Soviet subsidy systems in you know, pre-1989, because a lot of money was able to go into health and, and, um, and um, and education, but so have to be uh, make it really quick. I think. Yeah, I have a good question. I mean, you can't really talk about Vietnam without talking about the different regions traditionally Southeast Asian. So I'm always, I'm, I'm wondering, uh, did you have time uh, in your efforts to to note the differences that you found in each region, or is it basically just on a national level? Well, a lot of the work we did was on national legal reform, but we would go to Ho Chi Minh City or Da Nang or places like that to get. Um, to get comments. I didn't spend much time in the rural areas. Actually, a sister project uh, for us um, works on economic governance at the provincial level. And they've done a pro provincial competitiveness index, which uh, uh, um, uh, done by the Asia Foundation in, in context with, uh, another, with, with our company, actually. And that goes in, actually, to look at all 64 provinces, to look at the, uh, their effectiveness in terms of economic governance. That tries to go down to the provincial level more than, than, than we were able to. Okay. Um, it's interesting that we focused on the economy, which I think uh, is a tribute to the content of your talk, because that was your focus. Uh, the one question we didn't deal with, and we're not going to deal with it because we have dinner uh, waiting, is the political implications of this. I have a colleague, Harry Rowan, who extrapolates this dramatic economic growth rate in China and predicts democratization. Uh, it's a kind of political inference from economic growth, and there's modernization theory to support that and whatnot. And, and if we had another seminar, Perhaps we would begin with that question, because it is possible to imagine just the opposite, namely that we have here in process a vindication of the present Chinese model, which to really be crude about it is a closed polity accompanied by an open economy. Well, you can say that that's not, uh, that is really not diff much different than Singapore model or the right. Malaysian model. Right. It's an East Asian model where uh, social stability and sort of responsive governments, but without, you know, Philippines has been paying the cost of, of having a term limit for Ramos for, for the last yeah. 12 years and, and been having a hard time really getting democracy to work for them. Thailand, uh, they didn't like their guy that was democratically elected, so they got rid of them. You know, the, it is interesting yeah. to look at democracy. I mean, lots of people do. The role of democracy well, and, and how that fits in the East Asian development. So that would suggest that you've actually answered my question, namely that you do not see a kind of political liberalization flowing from this economic growth, but rather a strengthening of conceivably a one-party state. Um, I guess I, I, I don't know. Yeah. Well, I, I guess I, that's what I said. I don't, but I don't know if, if things continue to get better off. Yeah. Um, there's not going to be a dynamic to right. make those changes. You know, Korea and Taiwan, we went from right. It, yeah. To me, it's not a whole lot different whether you come from the right or the left on this. But in, in Korea, as you know, I mean, we, we went through a clear military dictatorships 
with lots of, of domestic repression, long, uh, you know, hard economic growth, and we moved into full democracies that are operating pretty effectively. Uh, Indonesia is really starting to get their legs democratically. Um, so I, I mean, I you okay, can so see different agnostic. models, I, I, but I, I, I guess what I do say is I don't see a lot of difference between, in some ways, uh, you know, the Communist Party of Vietnam and say the, the the ruling party in Singapore in terms of their approach to how they're 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 handling that political economic uh, you know process. On that comparative note, thank you. <laughs>